Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Green Faith is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to inspire, educate, and mobilize people of diverse religious backgrounds for environmental leadership. Green Faith believes that protecting the earth is a religious value and that environmental stewardship is a moral responsibility. Their work is based on beliefs shared by the world's great religions, and their executive director is the Reverend Fletcher Harper. An Episcopal priest, Reverend Harper is an award-winning spiritual writer and nationally recognized preacher on the environment. He teaches and speaks at houses of worship nationwide about the moral, spiritual basis for environmental stewardship and justice. A graduate of Princeton and Union Theological Seminary, he served as a parish priest for 10 years and in leadership positions in the Episcopal Church before becoming Green Faith's Executive Director. Fletcher, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I think we're in store for a very interesting hour here. The topics are so important and personal to everyone. Now, the sacred and the environment have been linked, basically, since the beginning of human spiritual consciousness as we know it. Can you share about what your organization does in the environmental arena? We think of ourselves uh, very much as a, a one-stop shop for religious institutions that want to engage environmental concerns. So we offer a range of resources to help faith communities integrate the environment into their religious education, uh, into their worship and ritual and spiritual practice, uh, into many of the different ways that they manage the considerable number of facilities that they own and control. Uh, we help them uh, encourage their members and equip their members to take those kinds of sustainable consumption habits home. Uh, and we also educate and advocate about the disproportionate impact of pollution on poor communities and the fact that that's deeply inconsistent with religious teachings and that faith communities need to do something about that. So we do a, a whole range of things and we package those various types of activities into a number of different programs. Mm, thank you so much for that. And of course, the word the word disproportionate uh, jumped out at me there, um, because the the effect uh, that we have on the environment can be disproportionate in itself in terms of our impact on the earth. Um, but you're also speaking then about even you know the, the categories within humanity. Yep, and the the data is is sadly um, unequivocally clear that while everybody is hurt by pollution and by environmental degradation, those human communities that suffer its worst impacts are consistently, in this country, communities of color and low-income communities. And on a global level, it's people who are poor and who are culturally or politically or economically the most vulnerable. And religious institutions, to their credit, 
have spent thousands of years trying to create a, a moral community around the world that, that speaks to the importance of protecting and respecting the dignity uh, of, of all people and of all life and environmental degradation and its, its enormous impact on the poor um, really runs right in the face of those values. So, Fletcher, then, when was the organization founded and, and by whom, and what were their um, interests then, their intent? The group was founded as an all-volunteer organization back in the early 1990s under the name of Partners for Environmental Quality. And the initial uh, goal of the organization was to, to find a way to try to educate and mobilize religious leaders about the fact that the environment was on some level a moral and religious issue. Um, back in the early 90s, there were very, very few religious communities that were looking at this link between faith and the environment, between religion and ecology. And, and, and for most people, it, it really didn't necessarily strike them right away that this was a connection that had to get made. So the initial aim of the organization was to start raising consciousness about that, which the early leaders of the group did through various educational presentations that they made in each other's congregations and, and things like that. And then towards the end of the 90s, we were able to get some support to try to encourage religious groups to purchase their electricity from renewable sources uh, because that was an opportunity that had opened up in our home state of New Jersey. And so that was really the beginning of the more concrete programmatic side of, of Green Faith's work, and it's grown from there. Thank you so much, Fletcher, for that. And, you know, I, it raises the question for me, uh, what, what, when did you join um, Green Faith as its director, and why? What what part of your calling did this answer, coming out of you know parish ministry and other leadership positions? How did you find yourself leading Green Faith? I'd been a parish priest for ten years and thought that uh, I was going to be doing that work for the rest of my life, and found out about green faith when it was still in its earlier incarnation as partners for environmental quality and was really taken uh, by the idea of uh, the connection between faith and the environment. I went to a number of, of meetings and, and got involved as a volunteer and the organization was, was struggling a bit and trying to make sense of whether it should continue or not. And I spoke up at several meetings and said that I thought that it was vital that it continue and uh, at one meeting, uh, someone turned to me essentially and said, uh, why don't you take the leadership role then? And uh, a good friend of mine was the, the previous executive director. She was resigning to go be at home with, uh, with several kids, and I uh, went home. It was a different life path than I'd anticipated, but I, I thought about it carefully and, and felt quite strongly that this was a, an important opportunity. And so I, I made the leap from being a parish priest to, to doing this work, and that was 11 years ago now. And, and we've thankfully been able to grow um, slowly and steadily and had an, an increasing impact, and I think that's going to continue. 
Mm, thank you so much. What a great uh, twist there. You know, I've I've heard that so many times. You're passionate. You do the job. Right. <laughs> yeah, you take it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and this, this time it, it, it happened to land on fertile soil, so to speak. It, uh, you know, I was I was at a point of transition and and uh, was was ready for for a, a new challenge. And this connected a lot of things that I care deeply about, and I think that a lot of people care deeply about on 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 one level. Um, I feel that quite consistently my most powerful spiritual experiences have happened outdoors, and I know that I'm far from alone in, in, in that case. Um, that's the case for an awful lot of people. Um, and, and yet I didn't see organized religion embracing or affirming the significance of those experiences to the degree that, that I felt they should. So that was one reason that this grabbed me, um, solely on the level of spiritual growth and development. And then there are the, the sort of larger social issues. I, I have long felt that the consumerist culture approach to trying to create value in life through consumption is, is one that's, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of benefits to consumption, but it doesn't do much for you as a religion, frankly. And, um, I think that this is another way in which religious groups are, are called to make a difference. Our consumerist lifestyle in its current incarnation is really is really destroying the planet, mm-hmm. and religious communities need to to stand up and be counted in terms of saying that that's fundamentally not a religious view on life. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, Fletcher. Now, when I think of faith and nature, uh, as an author on St. Francis, I immediately go to someone who was very deeply connected to nature and, like you, have experienced very profound spiritual experiences connected to nature. So it kind of brings up the question, which is, you know, the the relationship between faith and the environment or faith and nature seems to have its ups and downs and perhaps um, have, uh, became divided at some point, uh, maybe theologically or philosophically, ideologically, that somehow human beings were to rise up above nature somehow. And now we see where that's gotten us. Um, so can you speak to a little bit there about this, you know, sort of the journey of faith and, and nature uh, that the re- some, at least perhaps from your own experience, that the uh, faiths have gone through? Sure, and this is, it's, a, it's a, a very long and complicated history, and I'll, I'll lift up a couple of themes that I think are worth uh, considering. Um, one theme is, is that of, of the fact that, that all religions, especially all of the, the ancient world and wisdom traditions, have, have their roots in a, a, an era of human history when people were far more profoundly connected and dependent on the natural world in a highly direct first-hand way than, than we are now. And so if one looks at these traditions, there are resources in all of them that, that help strengthen that connection between faith and the earth. But what's happened over the course of the last uh, you know, 400 to 500 years post-Enlightenment and then post-Industrial Revolution is that increasingly, um, and there are many aspects of this for which we can be thankful, um, human beings have gained a, a greater degree of control or mastery over the natural world. Some of that has been really beneficial for us. Our life expectancy is, is much higher because of our technological and scientific innovations. And so it's, it's, this isn't to say that it's all a, a negative thing. 
But along with that, um, the level of, of pollution that has been created by the industrialization of, of the world's economy globally, um, the growth in uh, the human presence and human footprint, not only in terms of sheer numbers, but in the average environmental impact per person. I think that's, frankly, the more significant thing to pay attention to. Um, you know, all of uh, that, all of those things have combined. Um, religion has become focused uh, increasingly over the last century to century and a half in, in many areas on uh, the, the, the salvation of the individual soul um, with the natural world dropping more into the background, uh, not being as much of a concern as it might be. And, and so it's only a more recent thing, I mean, really since the, since the early 90s, that, that, that reconnecting uh, faith with the natural world started to emerge again. And perhaps uh, was that a result somehow of uh, something of the New Age movement that was happening then in the late 80s, early 90s that sort of sought to reconnect spirituality and, and, and you know, natural aspects of life? I, th- I think that there's I think that there's some of that. I also think that there is just very simply a, a rising ecological consciousness globally, and it was only a matter of time before uh, sort of the traditional organized religious communities began to uh, to get religion in that new area, if you will. Um, I think that the success of the environmental movement and the fact that um, although many secular environmental organizations um, aren't necessarily friendly towards or, or comfortable with organized religion. Um, the fact of the matter is that there were millions of, of people of various faiths who were involved in the environmental movement and who, when presented with the opportunity to connect that openly with their religious life, um, welcomed the chance to do so. So I think it's a, a combination of factors, the overall um, raising a rising green consciousness, um, new forms of religious expression that, that value that kind of outdoor spiritual experience that we referred to a few minutes ago. Um, and, and I think the other piece of the picture that's, that's been a, a factor has been the, the growth in environmental disasters that have happened. Uh, one of the, one of the things, one of the events that I think made an enormous impact within the last decade was Hurricane Katrina. There had been enough background education about the fact that one of the impacts of climate change was increasing severe storm activity, and when a, a massive storm hit the United States, uh, decimated a, a major city, and our TV screens were filled with images of poor people and African Americans um, who had been displaced and made homeless by the storm, um, that that image, in a very raw way, um, evoked a sense of moral concern among many faith communities that I saw, and and I think that played a role also. Yes, thank you very much for that, and it happened again recently as well uh, in New Jersey and with some similar outcomes that had to be addressed. Uh, Thank you for that. Now, we've spoken with many scholars and religious around the world who've shared their faith's perspective on the environment in relation to human beings, uh, from the Hindu, Taoist, Judeo-Christian traditions, and more. Can you share about the religious statements of faith uh, that are posted on your website from the world religions? And where did those come from? 
They, they come from a variety of sources. There are um, any number of, of good online resources. The Alliance for Religions and Conservation, a UK-based charity, has important sets of resources. The Forum on Religion and Ecology at, uh, that's, that's hosted at Yale University has a number of good sources. But individual faith communities increasingly have posted statements, resolutions, theological position papers that they've developed over time. Um, I think that several of the, the key similarities that these documents and these teachings from different traditions share, and it's important not to conflate them. There are real and genuine differences between the world's religions. Um, but I would say there's a universal sense that the natural world, um, on some profound level, does not ultimately belong to people, um, that, that uh, any kind of ownership systems that, that we may develop, and we need to develop them for human society, are, are ultimately accountable in some sense to a, a higher um, transhuman or beyond human standard. Um, I think another theme that, that emerges is the, the, um, the dignity of, of all life forms that there is, in some sense, uh, an inalienable dignity to all forms of life. And again, that, that doesn't get interpreted uh, as, as meaning that human beings can't make use of other life forms in, in, in regards to our need to survive. But it does counsel restraint and caution and respect in terms of our dealing with the natural world. Um, I'd say that a, a third theme that emerges is the theme we talked about earlier of justice in relationship to the environment, that there's a recognition that, uh, that it, it's just flat out wrong for societies to create situations where those who are poor, those who are marginalized either culturally or racially or economically or politically, um, it's just wrong for those communities to suffer. Um, at, a, at a much higher level from environmental degradation than, uh, than the general population does. So those are some of the, um, and I, I would say the final theme that, that one sees throughout, uh, throughout is, is this sense that in, in one way or another, the natural world serves to reveal the world of the spirit or the world of the divine, that, that in all of these traditions there's a sense, uh, whether it's in the Quran, which speaks about the natural world as a sign, the Arabic word is ayat, that points to the reality of Allah, of God, um, whether it's in Christian or Jewish theology where you find reference to there being two books to learn about God. One is the book of the Bible and the other is the book of nature. Um, you look to the, um, to the East, um, Hinduism celebrates different natural features as manifestations of the divine and is, is wonderfully unashamed in terms of doing that. Um, so I, I'd say that, that the final theme is, is that one of, uh, to use a, a Christian term, one of revelation, um, that, that the natural world reveals the world of the spirit and the world of the divine. That's beautiful. Thanks so much for that, Fletcher. Uh, sounds like a return to the garden, as it were. And uh, when you were sharing there, uh, the word sacred kept to, came to mind that there are certain things, as you said, that we don't own and, um, and that are sacred. And it seems like you were referring to stewardship there uh, when you were saying that we're not, you know, it's not about not utilizing life forms as human beings, um, but that there's a stewardship and responsibility 
involved. And uh, I love Einstein's, I think, quote, who said, the universe bends towards justice. Uh, that's a favorite of mine. <laughs> so yep. a lot of this is figuring uh, uh, in there. Now, you mentioned, now, now all these statements are on the Green Faith website. Does that mean that you are interacting with people of all these faiths in this endeavor? Yep. We, we work with Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Unitarian Universalists, a small number of Jains, uh, some Sikhs, um, not but to be frank, not very many Taoists or Confucianists at this point, um, but we are always eager to connect with people from an ever wider range of, of organized religious uh, background because it enriches our sense of, of what the world's religious communities have to say about these issues, and we mm-hmm. think that it helps build bridges between different communities that are working on these concerns. Yes, yes. And then how do you engage? I'm curious, you know, in terms of how that gets played out through the organization. In, in a variety of ways. I mean, we, uh, one, of the, one of the programs that we offer that helps uh, religious institutions engage these issues is our certification program, which is a two-year process through which religious communities integrate environmental concerns into their worship, into their religious education, into their facility management. Uh, they, they teach their members about how to take these sustainable consumption habits home. They do education and advocacy on environmental justice issues. And, and so that, that's one of the ways in which we interact with different faith communities is, to, is, is by supporting them and working with them as they, as they go through that program. Um, Another example is we have a um, many many people remember the uh, merit badge programs which have been popular for years for for children and for teenagers in a number of different areas. We have a a merit badge merit badge program of our own called the Green Faith Shield, and that's a, a program through which a, a religious institution can undertake a, a meaningful but limited number of steps in a specific environmental area. And, and earn the, the energy shield, for example, or the water shield. So we're in the process of identifying and working with 10 Hindu temples around the United States who will be the first 10 Hindu temples to earn the energy shield. We're doing that in collaboration with the Bhumi Project, which is a leading international Hindu environmental network. Um, and so that's a, another way. That, and that, that program, the SHIELD program, plays out over the course of a weekend, during which time congregations offer prayers or devotions on, on the environment, on the specific topic. They take some basic action steps in their own facilities to, to green themselves up, in this case in regards to energy usage. They, they get a certain number of their members to take steps at home. They do some education and advocacy, in this case calling on the government for uh, legislation to address climate change, um, and in the, at, at the at the end of that weekend worth of activity, they they earn the Green Faith Energy Shield. So, um, those are a couple of different examples of ways that we interact with congregations. Now, earlier you mentioned the Earth-based religions, or perhaps what we can also call Native or Aboriginal. Uh, religions. And I guess I'm wondering, do Native Americans play a role at all in this, in uh, working with Green Faith? I would say that their their teachings are significant. Um, if one looks at the, um, if one looks at the, uh, the teachings of 
the world's great religions um, and and studies them uh, in some depth and seriously i think i think it's fair to say that the teachings of many of the native or indigenous or first communities around the world have a, a place a much much stronger emphasis on the theme that we are all part of a wider community of creation or of life and that we have a, a kinship relationship with the, the plants and the animals and the landscapes with whom we share this space. And so I think that there's quite a significance in, in terms of teachings um, on, a, on a very concrete level in terms of day-to-day action and activism. My sense is that uh, Native American communities in the U.S have uh, an enormous struggle that they face on a regular basis for their own cultural and and physical and economic survival. And so we don't uh, interact a lot with them around the work that we do trying to mobilize churches and synagogues and mosques and temples. Um, we are absolutely indebted to the teachings and events that we organize. We have at times Native American leaders who come and, and speak uh, about their community's teachings and beliefs and, and, and actions in regards to these issues. But um, they haven't been a major part of the programming that we've done, I think, because there are um, other priorities that are, that are literally life and death that, that need to get addressed. Yes, certainly. And as you spoke there uh, about uh, animals and nature, it came to mind that, you know, children don't really divide this very much in the church. Uh, as kids, the the presence of nature and animals seems right in there uh, with, uh, you know, religious study or Bible study. Um, I think, it, is it something that grown-ups need to remember? Well, I think there's a there's a natural. I mean, most most children are closet or not even closet are are sort of out in the open animists in that they perceive uh, life and intentionality of certain kinds in very many parts of the natural world than than we do. Um, human beings, uh, we our our culture doesn't. Uh, tend to affirm that level of consciousness or that kind of consciousness in adulthood. One of the things that that we have seen consistently, however, is that uh, people continue to have experiences through which they uh, believe they have what what Martin Buber would have called an I-thou experience, a subjectively meaningful personal connection with an animal or a landscape or a, a certain natural setting. And and so I think that um, and and adults remember these experiences from their own life. They've just been trained to some degree not to talk about them too openly because there's a cultural taboo against them. Um, and so I think that it's a, a one of the things that we encourage and challenge religious groups to do is to serve as a a place where these stories can emerge, where people can talk about their relationships that they've had uh, with animals, with plants, with landscapes outdoors that that matter deeply to them, um, because the experiences and the memories are there. What's what's needed is places where people can talk about these experiences and and let that power get released. Do you remind me of a of a church? I think it was Holy Innocence, which is an Episcopal church at um, Highland Falls, just outside West Point. They have a stained glass window in there that was commissioned by, I think, J.P. Morgan by through Tiffany's. <laughs> 
And it's just the most breathtaking thing you've seen. And what it is, is just a cliff and the ocean in stunning colors. And you walk in and it just takes your breath away and, and just reconnects you right there with all, all that's created, all that is good. We're about halfway through the program right now, Fletcher. So I'm just going to take a quick break for station ID. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Reverend Fletcher Harper, Executive Director of Green Faith. Stay with us. One flame, many candles, one sky, many stars, one sea, many rivers, one love, many hearts. One world, many forests. One forest, many trees, one tree, many branches, one branch, many leaves. Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with Reverend Fletcher Harper, Executive Director of Green Faith, about religion and the environment. Um, Fletcher, before the break, you mentioned something really important, which was this relationship that is I-thou. Um, I think when we talk about organized religion, as we have in the program, we can sort of become systematic about faith fitting in a box and congregations fitting in a box, and we all play by these rules, and something sort of raw and imaginative about the I-thou relationship can dissipate, and it sort of needs to be livened in us again. Can you share a little more about that for our listeners who may have just joined us? Sure. So uh, what I would say is is we see uh, over and over again, one of the exercises that we do in, in, in different faith communities is uh, to invite small groups of adults to recall 
experiences of God, experiences of the sacred, um, spiritual experiences, deeply meaningful experiences that they've had outdoors. And we find that, that just about everybody can remember these experiences, and they remember them whether the experiences happened five days ago or five decades ago. Uh, the memories that people share are, are uh, astonishingly fresh and vivid. And when people seek to communicate these experiences, it's, it's a wonderful thing to watch because they're extraordinarily expressive. Uh, they inflect their voices with great care. Their hands are moving all over the place. Their, their, their complexions grow flush with excitement. And it's because people are trying to communicate something of of almost incommunicable importance and significance. Um, I, as a, a pastor, I, I like to think and believe that I have some capacity to recognize when what the Christian tradition calls the Holy Spirit um, enters into people's lives. And I'm, I'm clearly convinced that when people reconnect with these memories of what's happened to them outdoors, that, that that's what's going on, that there is a, a powerfully life-giving and good spirit and energy that's entering their lives. And, and so when we talk about people recapturing that kind of more personal uh, relationship with the natural world, those uh, peak experiences, those deeply meaningful experiences are, are really significant. Um, they're akin in, in certain ways to experiences of, of falling in love that we have with our spouse or, or partner, where um, on, a, on a, a sudden and very powerful level, all of a sudden, there is a, an undeniable beauty or awe uh, or connection that gets made between ourselves and, and a part of the natural world. And by extension, um, those experiences then serve as a foundation for people to develop values that, that lead them to respect uh, or to try to respect um, the entire created order, the entire community of creation uh, to a greater degree in the rest of their lives. Thank you. So I'm going to talk about the pink elephant in the room now and say um, I had a very profound experience many years ago in my younger and more vulnerable years, of um, I climbed up a, a literally a mountain in North Wales uh, while I was a student over there, and uh, in the rain it was very, you know, dramatic and such. And uh, and on top I found uh, an, the remnants of an ancient Celtic settlement, and uh, as the rain was sort of bobbing on everything, this incredible white rose. Uh, there on top of the mountain um, became basically like the meditation piece uh, for a lifetime for me. And in that moment, uh, there was no time, there was no space, there was it was a it was a sort of a beyond kind of you know our usual parameters kind of moment, kind of held in time. And so I wanted to ask you as well, what encounter with nature has really moved you? There have been, I've been fortunate to have many. Um, I had an experience uh, in childhood. I was probably nine or ten years old that I still remember vividly in uh, in Rhode Island um, on a, a summer vacation that our family took um, where I was running outside in bare feet on a on a misty day and, and my foot 
uh, ran across the top of a rock and all, all of a sudden somehow for reasons that are beyond my understanding um, in connecting with that, that cold rock, um, all of a sudden right at that instant, just as you described with your experience, time stopped essentially and had a tremendous sense. I mean, this is not the language that you use when you're nine years old, but it was this tremendous fullness of, of life and fullness of being right, right there and right then. Um, tremendous sense of depth and of, of love within life and of appreciation. And that, that stuck with me. I've had experiences. I like to fish and I've had numerous experiences um, outdoors, standing in or alongside rivers. Um, I, I grew up, I mean, some people say, well, you have to be from the country to have this kind of experience. And I don't agree. I, I grew up and lived in New York City. And one of the great things about living in a city I found is that you end up spending quite a bit of time outside because you've got to walk more. And and uh, it's not like you're in the suburbs when you're in your car all the time. And um, I, I found consistently a sort of really uh, vibrant sense of the outdoors in in the city, sometimes connected with pollution, um, always intertwined with, uh, with humanity um, in all of its diversity. But there are a lot of different experiences that I've had. We do an exercise with uh, people that we bring through one of our training programs, which is called our fellowship program. Um, we, we have people do what's called an eco-autobiography, where they take an hour or so, sit down, and recall meaningful experiences they've had outdoors from different stages of their life, from childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, adulthood. Um, and and people can 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 draw up the memories of those experiences, and it's it's wonderful to watch them do it because when they do, it's as if the natural world um, is revealed as having been a, a character, a partner through their through their life, and very often a consistent source of calm or of peace or of inspiration or of motivation, and and yet most people never take the time to think about their relationship in in that kind of way. Um, but it's there. It, it doesn't take a lot of effort to recover it. it uh, it's not something that people need. Uh, it's not something that people need years of therapy to recover. It, yes, it, it, it's right there, and, <laughs> right under the surface. Yeah, and that's the hopeful thing. I think uh, mm. you know one of the concerns that we've got about um, a lot of the um, a lot of the the language used by the uh, by much of the environmental movement is that very often it tends to have an apocalyptic tone to it. And I don't mean to be Pollyannish because we're, we're plenty well aware of the fact that the environmental threats that, that face us are, are grave and severe. Um, but we do think that it's really vital to try to evoke and, and call forward these powerful, positive memories and experiences that people have because those form the basis for a, a, a genuinely sustainable spirit towards the natural world and, and make it so that these issues are not just, uh, not just about um, sort of needing to criticize certain things, but they're about standing up for something that one values deeply. Yes, thank you so much for that. And, um, you know, I agree about the about the role of nature in the city. It is a character, you know, in this in the scene. And it's almost like there's an agreement, you know, I'll be here if you'll be there. And we can almost take it for granted. But things like the, you know, the beautiful old 
vines that were growing all over a brownstone, like down in the village or something. Uh, that's a really that's a that's an enchanted forest, you know, for when you're growing up there, um, and just adds so much life. And um, uh, as a as somebody who grew up in the city, I, I do I do see what what you see in that as well. And even in those little things, the the flower that breaks through the crack in the concrete, you know, yep. it's just it's just right there under the surface, and you know. I understand what you're saying about the threats to the environment. They are real and they are they are severe. Um, we moved up from the city to coastal Maine here just a few weeks before 9-11, um, our family. And, uh, you know, the, the, the life force is so strong, you know, like after six months of winter, the slightest glimmer of a the little hint of warmth, and it's just burgeoning, you know, green and plants and bugs and everything just right away, like on the same day. It's just an amazing force of nature, amazing, amazing force of creation. And, uh, and I think to raise that up and celebrate it, you know, as you say, is, is, is essential in facing these challenges. Now, do you also work with individuals and not only de- denominations? Well, we work uh, we work with individuals in the context of uh of uh of their part or of their being members of or parts of uh, religious communities. We work with a number of environmental organizations also, but our our focus really is on on working within the within the religious community and trying to to help that community mobilize its considerable influence on, on, in support of protecting the earth. Again, for anyone who may have joined us more recently, can you just touch base again on what roles the, the churches can play in sustainability? There are a, a number of roles that that, uh, that churches, synagogues, religious groups can play. Um, so one one example is a very simple one in relationship to uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Religious institutions in the United States control as much real estate, uh, almost as much real estate as the hospitality sector, um, hotels and restaurants. And so that's not an inconsiderable amount of real estate. Um, religious institutions do not tend to be managed very energy efficiently for, for a number of reasons. Often they're, they're managed by volunteers. Often they're, um, there are reasons that people think that the space needs to be heated to a greater degree than it, than it actually does when there's nobody in it. And so one of the things that we help religious institutions do is, is to cut their greenhouse gas emissions and their energy use. And that, that helps them save money, which is a good corollary benefit. Um, but we found that it's, it's very doable for these institutions to cut their energy use 15 to 20% without spending a penny um, or spending very, very little. Um, another thing that we help religious groups do is uh, we've, we've facilitated financing for solar projects. Uh, about a megawatt worth of solar projects on different faith-based sites in New Jersey, and we're starting to do that now in, in New York and Massachusetts as well, um, trying to use these these institutions as a, a model um, for the use of renewable energy. And we've been able to do that in a way that, that creates financial benefits for the congregations as well as... Uh, um, uh, as as well as uh, as well as creating environmental benefits, um, we we do uh, a lot of work with religious institutions, helping them advocate uh, 
Uh, so, for example, one of the things that, that we're concerned about is that we think that the laws governing toxic chemicals in the United States, which are still governed by a, a law called the Toxic Substances Control Act from the 1970s, we think that law is, is horrendously out of date. And so we've been educating and advocating for several years, trying to encourage religious institutions to call on their elected leaders to, to change those laws, to make them more protective of human health and the environment. Um, most recently, we've uh, we've launched a campaign called Divest and Reinvest Now, which is a campaign to encourage faith communities to um, to sell off their fossil fuel holdings and their endowments and pension funds and and investment portfolios, because we don't believe anymore that it's it's morally decent for religious groups to to profit from the operation of of the fossil fuel industry. Um, and so we do a lot of education and outreach uh, with faith leaders around that. So there really are a, a, a wide range of ways that we interact with faith communities. Folks can, can learn about our work on our website at www.greenfaith.org. Um, and so that, that's a good place for them to go to learn more. And, you know, Fletcher, as you were speaking, it seemed to me such a great idea what you're doing, because in this time also when the economy goes down, pledges go down in uh, in the churches uh what they c- collect can be reduced but the cathedral ste- ceiling is still sucking up all that heat that's rising um so you're able to help folks with you know like you said solar uh capabilities and and ways to bring the energy costs down which is just really also besides helping the environment it also helps the church Yep, absolutely. And we find that there are a lot of opportunities for that sort of enlightened self-interest for religious groups to to take steps that'll protect the environment and that'll be good for the congregation. Sometimes we find that when a, a religious institution really um, invests itself significantly in the protection of the earth, that that it's it becomes a way of of engaging new and younger members, uh, many of whom care about those issues and want to see, want to belong to a faith community or a spiritual community that that shares those values. So I think that's an, another corollary benefit to religious institutions uh, is that this is a, you know, is that by engaging these issues, it's a, it's a way of demonstrating that they're, they're with the program. They sort of get that this is a major issue. Mm. So um, I think that's a, another, another corollary benefit. Yes, it's a, it's a win-win. Um, now, you mentioned certification earlier in the previous part of the show. Can you share a little more about the programs and certifications that Green Faith offers in more detail? Sure. So our certification program itself is a, a two-year process that houses of worship go through. And, and during that two years, they start out by auditing their own environmental performance in a whole host of different areas. In in the areas of worship, they look at what are they doing in worship to address and, and reinforce and deepen people's sense of the connection between spirituality and faith and the environment. They look at, at what are they doing in their religious education programming. They look at, at how they're managing their own facilities, um, assessing their performance in seven different areas of, of resource use, such as energy and water and toxics and food and transportation, waste, procurement, things like that. Um, and then they look at their advocacy on behalf of the most vulnerable 
and look to see what they're doing that, that connects those themes with the environment. And after doing that pretty thorough assessment, which usually takes three to four months, they then proceed to develop an action plan which they put into, into place and address um, all of those different concerns in, in certain ways over the course of, a, of an 18-month period. And, and what we see with the congregations that engage that is that they really undergo a, a very holistic kind of transformation where uh, the, the process that we've set up, which, which we support significantly both on the staff side and also in terms of online resources, they, they start doing a whole host of different things that are relating their faith with the environment. So whether it means that they are changing to green cleaners while conserving energy and water, while educating about the biblical basis for the protection of creation and having special worship services a couple of times each year where these themes get lifted up, and then doing some education about the impact of toxic chemicals on farm workers, for example, which we've seen in certain certification sites in, in the Carolinas where there are large agricultural areas still. Um, we, uh, you know, we see a real transformation that happens in the consciousness of the members of, of these congregations where all of a sudden they, they realize first that the natural world is a tremendous source of, of spiritual energy and, and strength, and, uh, and they're deeply grateful for that, and they realize that it's a, a deeply moral responsibility to take care of the earth, and they want their congregation to be a place that, that, really, uh, that really puts that belief into action. So that, that's what we see with the, the certification program with our fellowship program, which is a, an education and training program for clergy and for uh, lay leaders uh, around the country. Um, that's an 18-month program, and our fellows come to the Mid-Atlantic region three times during that 18-month period for three retreats of four days apiece, and they... Uh, they, they, they do the eco-theological, eco-autobiographical writing that I mentioned earlier. They look back through their own religious tradition and their own personal experience to find the, the beliefs that they hold most deeply about the environment. Um, every fellow organizes and carries out a leadership project of one kind or another. So we've had fellows who have recorded CDs of, of worship music um, in relationship to the environment. We have self, several fellows who've written books about the link, the link between faith and the environment. We have fellows who've done a series of zero-waste potluck suppers at different faith communities to, to demonstrate how religious institutions can reduce the amount of solid waste they, they produce. We've had fellows organize regional trainings. We've, we've seen fellows organize different spiritual retreats where they take people outdoors as a, a means of spiritual revitalization. So we've seen fellows undertake a, a really wide range of different types of, of projects and, and then go on to become leaders of initiatives in different parts of the country on these on these issues. So I love that. The potluck issue. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a, a nationwide, <laughs> worldwide yep. issue. Thank you for dealing with that. Um, now, 20 years later, how does Green Faith look now? And Fletcher, what do you hope for the organization? My, my hope is that it becomes as common in religious communities for there to be substantial action and commitment made around protecting the environment as there is around fighting hunger, for example, or fighting poverty. Religious groups have made an invaluable 
contribution to addressing many social issues throughout their long history. And now it's time for these issues, for these, uh, for these institutions, these same institutions, to step forward on the environment. More and more of them are doing that, and we're proud that Green Faith helps support a nice amount of that activity. And so we want to create more and more ways that faith communities can, can get involved, whether through our SHIELD program, which is that weekend-long merit badge for the environment that faith communities can earn, whether it's through getting certified in our certification program, whether it's through uh, getting their clergy or lay leaders trained through our fellowship program, whether it's through taking a strong activist approach through our divestment and reinvestment program, um, you know, where, where we see this uh, an engagement of the environment becoming something that, that uh, 10 years ago was quite rare in religious communities. We see that becoming more and more um, an emergent norm within faith communities, and we want to do whatever we can to accelerate that process um, not only because the work's important, but also because we know that the clock is ticking in terms of a number of these issues. We, we can't afford another decade of inaction on climate change at the national level in the United States. Um, if we do, it will literally be a, a death sentence for um, hundreds of thousands of people around the planet, and it will be a, a, a sentence of refugeeship for, for millions and millions of others. So. Mm. Uh, we, we need to take action now, and we want religious groups to be an important part of that. Fletcher, thank you so much. As we near the end of the interview, I just want to let listeners know that all your website and contact information will be posted shortly on GodspeedInstitute.com. Reverend Harper, I just want to thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And best of luck and onward with Green Faith. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually-based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.